Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Well, good morning, NC4 family in Bethlehem joining us live and here in McCungie and everyone joining us online. Welcome. We're going to get started with today's message. So we're carrying on with our series that you may believe this morning where we've been looking at the Gospel of John and specifically the signs and the I am statements within John's Gospel because John tells us that they speak to who Jesus is and what he came to do. So last week's message, we looked at Jesus' last I am statement. I am the true vine and The final sign that he performed was back in chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus. And so you say, well, if we're looking at the signs and I am statements, why haven't we ended the series already, Ian? And it's because there's a lot more still to come in these last few chapters. And I believe John is telling us through the course of his narrative that everything, all of these signs and statements are leading up to the culmination of Jesus's mission in these last few chapters of the book, 18, 19, and 20. And so Hopefully, um, those of you who are able to read chapters 16 and 17 uh, leading up to today, we're going to be looking at chapter 18. At the beginning of chapter 12, there's this momentous moment where Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's completed all of his uh, signs. Uh, There's no more cryptic public teaching He now makes himself clearly known and and announces himself as king by riding into Jerusalem and the people hail him as king. They say, Hosanna. And so that's what we celebrate today on Palm Sunday. Hopefully you were given a palm on the way in and the people laid the palms down on the street for him to ride over as a king. And so from that point on in the rest of the book, John focuses in on the last six days of Jesus's life. So chapters 13 all the way to 17, uh, Jesus is really giving his farewell speech to his disciples. And it's all at the Last Supper. Although John doesn't actually describe the meal, it's all taking place on that night before he's betrayed. Now, right in the middle of chapter 13, Judas leaves. He disappears. And he reemerges at the beginning of chapter 18, but with a band of soldiers. And that's where we're going to pick up our reading. Chapter 18, beginning verse 4. And it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Some translations simply say, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you've gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. 
So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them, and they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I've said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you're not also one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they laid Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. 
They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So here ends our reading for today. Let's pray before we get into this. Father, I pray that the words that we've just read and the the time that we're going to study your word together right now, open our hearts, open our minds by your Holy Spirit, that we would receive everything that you have to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've just read of the events of what's traditionally called the Passion of Jesus. And this Friday in Bethlehem campus, there's going to be an immersive experience of that day, that that path that Jesus took to the cross. And it's traditionally what Christians celebrate as Good Friday. Now, those are strange words if you think about it. Celebrate. Good. (laughs) It's really quite bizarre when you attach those words to what we've just read, right? And I want you to take your, try and take yourself out of the familiarity, the, the familiarity that you have as a person within a Christianized culture and person within church. Obviously, 
take yourself out of that familiar language and just realize how strange this actually is. All right, because what happened here at face value? An innocent man is subjected to a barbaric form of execution that was not invented by the Romans, but certainly perfected by the Romans. And it was a way of maximizing pain in a slow death to humiliate and to terrify oppressed people into submission. And the only reason that the narratives, none of the Gospels really give many details about crucifixion because they didn't need to. The people that read these narratives knew exactly what a crucifixion crucifixion looked like because they happened all the time. They were the Romans' method of choice for shocking people into obedience. And so, thousands of people met this fate in the ancient world. So you have to ask, what exactly is special about this crucifixion? Well, for one, it stands out because we know the name of the the man who's on the cross, which for most victims of uh, crucifixion, we have no historical record of. But actually, many historians of the time, not just the, the gospel writers, but even Roman historians, several of them, thought that this particular execution was important enough to actually record it in the books of their history with his name. Interesting. They thought it was important because what happened was this gave birth to a movement of people that said he not only was crucified, but he died for our sins. So I want to take this approach this morning and kind of stop and take this with new eyes, if we can. And the question is, what if he did die for you? What if he did die for you? For next week, we're going we're to ask, what if we don't die? Looking at the resurrection. But today, what if he did die for you? And I want to ask three questions specifically looking at John's account of the crucifixion. Who's responsible? What does it mean? And why does it matter to us? Okay? So, first of all, who is responsible for Jesus' death? Because isn't it wrong to say Jesus just died? Wasn't he killed, according to what we just read? So if he was killed, who was responsible? And obviously, you could say, well, the Roman soldiers— they're the ones that actually did the flogging and the nailing and the, the, the piercing in the side. And so they, they're the ones that actually kill him. But what's interesting is that in all the gospel narratives, the soldiers are the ones that come out most positively. And instead, what you see is that there's four groups of people that John and, and the other gospel writers, they say that they betrayed him or handed him over or delivered him. And and in each of those cases, it's translating the same Greek word. And whether betraying, whether handing over, whether delivering him, they're all doing the same thing. So you probably got this sense as we were reading through it just then that this, this narrative, it kind of reads like a game of pass the buck, right? Nobody wants to take responsibility for this act. One group is passing the responsibility on to the other one. And so we've got four groups of people. The first one that is described as giving Jesus over, delivering him, handing him over, is Judas Iscariot. One of Jesus' 12 closest protégés, and he's, he's simply called the betrayer. 
So Judas turns Jesus over to the religious authorities. And then if you fill in the picture from some of the other gospel accounts, we read that Judas, after he does this and he realizes that they're going to kill him, he immediately regrets it. He tries to give the money back and he's so racked with guilt that he, he commits suicide. He throws the money back on the priests as if almost to, to pass the responsibility back onto them. He's trying to wash his hands of it, right? So then we turn to the priests. The priests put Jesus on trial. They try and bring in false witnesses. But then they end up condemning Jesus uh, for what they say is blasphemy, that he made himself out to be the son of God. But they don't want to take responsibility either. So it's interesting, in other situations, they seem quite happy to stone somebody. But in this situation, they say, no, 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 Pilate, Romans, you do it. We're all of a sudden really faithful Roman citizens. So they pass him on to Pontius Pilate. Pilate receives Jesus and he tries uh, a few different ways to get out of his responsibility. So when you read in the other Gospels, the first thing he does is he sends him, oh, he's, he's Jewish. Let me send him to Herod, the Jewish ruler. So he goes to, to Herod. Jewish says, I mean, Herod says, uh, I don't know what to say here. I'll send him back to Pilate. Pilate tries to do something nice for the people and release a prisoner. That doesn't work. And then he simply, you know, he tries to limit his own responsibility. He says, well, if I just get him flogged, maybe they'll be happy with that. No. Finally, we read in, in the other Gospels that uh, he puts the responsibility back on the crowds and he washes his hands symbolically of this man's blood. And so now the buck gets passed to the crowds, what John calls simply the Judeans, the Jews. And it says in John that, that the Judeans took issue with the sign that was over Jesus' head. It's interesting because as we're celebrating on Palm Sunday, just a few days before, all those same people had been hailing him as king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now they're saying, well, we don't, we don't want to call him king. He said he was king. So they passed the buck on to Jesus, right? And so Jesus wasn't the king that they wanted, the king that they expected, and then even Peter, Peter who just that very night had sworn his faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus, I'll go with you anywhere you go. I'll go, I'll go with you to the ends of the earth. And Jesus tells him exactly what he's going to do. And Peter shirks his responsibility as a friend, as a student of Jesus, and he denies him three times. And so every single player in this controversy bears responsibility. And yet every single one tries to avoid responsibility. Notice that the only one who bears no responsibility is the only one who actually takes responsibility. It says Jesus went out. To, he knew what was going to happen. And it says he went out to meet his betrayer. And he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. And he said, that's me. And Jesus, in other words, Jesus hands himself in. He knew it was going to happen. He could have gotten away. And you could, I don't know if you have this 
kind of reaction to the story. But every time I read the story, I'm kind of like, Jesus, get out of there. <laughs> you know, like do something, right? How many other times in the Gospels have, have the crowds wanted to force him to be king or do something else? And Jesus, he slips away somehow. And yet here, he does nothing. It makes me feel like the end of uh, the movie Titanic. If you've seen that. It's kind of like, you know, Jack, there's clearly room for you on the, on the thing. You really don't have to die, man. You know, and, and I kind of feel that way about Jesus. It's, it's like infuriating. Jesus, do something. Defend yourself, right? John's message is clear here. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus handed himself in. Judas, the priests, Pilate, the people, even the disciples were to blame. Yes, they're guilty for his death, but they didn't subject Jesus to this. Jesus delivered himself over to be crucified. And so in chapter 10, we remember the words that he told his disciples. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. They didn't take his life. He gave his life. And so our first point here is that Jesus laid his own life down for his betrayers. And that brings us to our second question, which is, what does this all mean? Why was Jesus's death necessary? It's interesting when most of the time when we try and think about uh, what's the meaning of the cross, what is the, the, the meaning of Jesus' death for us, a lot of times we'll turn first to the book of Romans or we'll turn to other writings of the New Testament. Why do we so rarely turn to the Gospels? And I think part of it is that the Gospels are a narrative. And it's harder to reduce a narrative to formulas and easily you know, managed systems. And so, John clearly feels that this is the most important thing that he has to tell us. That's why he devotes almost half the book to these couple days of Jesus' life. And so, what is the meaning of the crucifixion according to John? Well, because he's giving us a story, John's not giving us a a theological uh, treatise. We have to look closely at the narrative elements of what he's written, right? So let's ask the question, what would John's writing have meant to his original audience? And as soon as you do that, you begin to see two things, two major things that are going on in what he's written. And it's this, I'll I'll say them and then I'll explain them, right? So Jesus on the cross, he's being enthroned as king. And secondly, he's becoming the Passover lamb, right? And when you put those things together, you begin to see why his death was necessary. So first of all, Jesus had to die to become our king. That's strange. Well, remember, this whole second half of the book, it begins with this kingly act of entering Jerusalem to the fanfare of all the crowds and This is something that is a little bit lost on us in modern days, but ancient people knew exactly what was going on here. 
Just a couple hundred years before this, Alexander the Great had done exactly the same thing. He conquered Jerusalem. He rode in uh, on a horse, and he's the conquering king. And oftentimes they would present themselves as saviors, uh, a bit like Russian tanks rolling in as liberators of the people. And so this is what the people understand is happening as Jesus enters the city. And yet, he doesn't ride in as any king. He enters in not on a horse, but on a donkey. He does that because he's declaring, I'm not just any king. I am the messianic king that's been foretold in scripture. This is a a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9. Jesus is the fulfillment of all this messianic, uh, prophetic fervor that had been brewing in Jerusalem for hundreds of years. And so, obviously, this is why the people are so excited. There's overtones of royalty throughout this whole passage that we read. Jesus declares himself a king to Pilate, and Pilate presents him this way to the priests, to the crowd. And then at the end, it's the charge that's placed over his, de- his head in all of the common languages so that everyone would understand. And so Jesus knew it was only going to be through his death that the world would grant him that title, King of the Jews. And even though they meant it ironically, they were making the truest statement that has ever been made. And so Jesus had to die to become king. And then all of this gets deeper when you begin to ask, when exactly was this happening? Now, if you remember through the the course of the book of John, it's been absolutely critical to pay attention to the the particular feast or the particular time of the Jewish calendar uh, that it was to understand what Jesus is saying, the context of what he's saying. Well, here at the climax of the whole of John's story, the the climax of Jesus' mission, he chooses not the Feast of Booths, not the Feast of Dedication, not even the Day of Atonement. He chooses Passover as the occasion to complete his mission. And so that tells you that you have to bear that context in mind to even try and understand what is happening here, according to John. And the implication is absolutely crystal clear when you do understand that. John is saying, Jesus had to die to become our Passover lamb. Passover was the defining event of uh, the history of Israel. Obviously, it's celebrated to this day. And This is the center of the Hebrew story. This is the center, the the defining event of the Hebrew scriptures. The story of how God freed Israel from slavery uh, in Egypt so that they would be free to go worship him. And it was all through marking their houses with a lamb's blood and then uh, feasting on that lamb. And because of that, God's spirit would pass over them and judgment would pass over them. And so this is, that, this is huge, and we're going to see why uh, a little further on. But according to John, why is it that Jesus needed to die? Why was it necessary? Well, he says to become king and to become our Passover lamb. 
Why is that significant, John? Because John tells us somehow Jesus' death was not just like any other crucifixion. Jesus' death was a substitution. It was a, a representative death. And he shows this in two ways, all right? So towards the beginning of our passage, you saw that Caiaphas, uh, who was the high priest, he prophesied it's better for one man to die on behalf of the people than for the whole nation to perish. And so John is saying there's a sense in which this man represents the nation. And then secondly, when Pilate brings out Barabbas, Jesus somehow is dying in his place. It should have been Barabbas. And so we look at all this. What John is saying is, Jesus' death only makes sense within the story of Passover. And he became our king in order to represent a people. Because when you think about a king, a king is a, a figurehead. A king represents a nation, right? The queen encapsulates Britishness. And I'm going to leave the the comparison there. But (laughs) some people would be happy for me to take it further. Jesus, in his death, because he becomes king, he becomes a substitute for his people. And at the same time, John says this makes sense in the context of Passover. This king is making himself our Passover lamb, by which the people will be saved from judgment. Okay, so you're probably thinking, great, what does that have to do with me? (laughs) What does it have to do with you? That's our third and final section here. Because here's the thing, this doesn't just apply to the people that Caiaphas was talking about. He was talking about first century, you know, Jewish Palestine. Caiaphas said that, but actually the earliest Christians said This somehow has something to do with everything in humanity. The very first Christian creed that is preserved in 1 Corinthians 15, we think it dates back to within the first five years of after the resurrection. The first Christian creed, it says, Jesus died for our sins. For our sins. He became our king, our Passover lamb. But Ian, I'm not Jewish. (laughs) <laughs> might be one or two Jewish people here, but most of us aren't. And even that, you know, you can take it further than that. Why wouldn't, and many people have asked this question, why would an all-powerful, all-loving God, if he wanted to forgive us, why didn't he just forgive us? Right? What's the, what's the, the, the purpose of such a bloodthirsty, barbaric sacrifice? And you can take it even further. How can another person die for my sins anyway? Isn't that contrary to what the Bible says elsewhere? Well, here's where we got to be careful, all right? Because a lot of times when people talk about this, I've heard it in the sense that, okay, all humanity deserves the death penalty. And Jesus, he, he walks into the courtroom and he says, I'll take the death penalty for them. And yet, I used to watch Law and Order, and um, there was an episode of Law and Order years ago that, that pointed out an issue with this. And there was, there was an episode where a father uh, didn't want his daughter to go to jail, and so he confesses to a murder that he didn't commit. 
so that, you know, he'll go to jail instead of the daughter, right? And the investigators find out about this and they, you know, they throw the confession out of court and the, and the daughter goes to jail. And it made me realize, you know, when you explain what Jesus is doing on the cross that way, that would never stand in any court of law. That's not just. And so it doesn't seem to make any sense. And this is partly, I believe, why to modern ears, a lot of people hear this as a story of cosmic child abuse more than they hear it as good news. We talk about good news and then we talk about, you know, something that sounds absolutely bloodthirsty. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them? And here's the first point I want to make here is that forgiveness is never free. <laughs> forgiveness is never free. Now, now here, here's a scenario to, to help paint the picture, all right? So say you have some friends over and, you know, they're all parked in your driveway and one of them is backing out of the driveway and they knock over your garden wall, all right? Now, in that situation— you've got two options. You can make your friend pull out their checkbook right then and there and pay for the wall, or you can forgive them, right? That doesn't mean the wall, the broken wall, the cost of the broken wall suddenly disappears. All that it means is that the person who's paying the damages changes from your friend to you. The cost doesn't go away, just the person who pays it. And so you can choose to forgive the debt, and there's nothing unjust in doing that. There's nothing unjust with a person who has the means paying for the debt of another person. Anyone can pay another person's debt if they have the means, but the greater the debt, the greater the cost of that forgiveness. And so I'm not just playing language games here. There's something much more important than semantics in, in what we've just seen, because it doesn't just say in Scripture that Jesus died for our sins. It says that he died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And so the Scripture that it's referring to is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So according to the Hebrew Bible, what is the debt that humanity owes to God? It's not just obedience to the law— it's our undivided love. It's our worship. So it makes perfect sense. Now think about it. Think about it as, uh, in terms of your, your parents, okay? What does a child owe to their parents? So picture a, a perfectly obedient little boy, okay? <laughs> perfectly obedient little boy, obeys his mother every single time. He's never, ever disobeyed, even once. He grows up, moves out of the house, never talks to his mother again. Something's wrong, right? Yes, he was perfectly obedient, but doesn't he owe something more than obedience? Doesn't he owe his mother love? And so, according to the scriptures— Humanity was not made just to be good little boys and girls, just to obey God. 
Humanity was made to glorify God by enjoying him, by loving him. And so that's actually what God deserves. Not only because we owe him our existence, but because God, if there is a God, he is the most beautiful, the most, the most good, the most incredible being in existence. It would be wrong not to love such a person. Morally wrong not to love such a person. And so that's what God deserves. And so naturally, if that's the real state of things, then if you put other lesser things at the center, if you love other things more than him, things start to get out of whack. If you love your, your work or your, you know, your sense of pleasure more than your family or your parents, or all of a sudden, I've seen this growing up in, with recovering addicts, people who would say, yeah, I love my mom, but they stole from their mom to buy drugs. Well, you clearly love the drugs more than you love your mom, right? And so what happens is the, relationships gets, the, relationships get, the relationship gets broken. The, the, that person's life socially, physically, mentally, spiritually begins to break down. That's the result of addiction by putting something that was never meant to fulfill you at the center of your life. So, The basic fault of humanity is not wrong behavior, but wrong worship. The wrong behavior stems from wrong worship. It's kind of like God is the fuel that we're made to run on. And if you put other fuel in the tank, it's not that the fuel's bad. It's it's, it's in the wrong place. It's not designed to run the, the, the engine, right? So I'm closing. <laughs> Our kids are coming back up. I, add, I want you to, we've been trying to step out of the familiarity of this passage, and I want you to ask yourself, where, where do you see yourself in this passage? Who are you in this passage? Have you given your undivided love to God? Because you read this passage, everyone turned away from him. So maybe you've turned away from him towards money, like Judas. Have you turned away from him in pride, like the priests? Have you turned away in fear, like Pilate? Turned away in disappointment, like the crowds? Turned away in embarrassment, like Peter? I personally see myself in Peter as I look back on my life. Times where I should have identified myself with Jesus, but it was embarrassing to do so. I was afraid of what people might think of me, what might happen to me. We've all turned away. You look at all these people in this story, which of us is any better? If you were there in that moment, what would you have done? You would have turned away just like all of them. And yet it says Jesus gave himself for us. The very first Christian document in existence, the book, the letter to the Galatians, the author says, he loved me and he gave himself 
for me. It's the same word that's used in this passage. He handed himself over. He betrayed himself for his betrayers. And it says, Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He became our king, the representative of the people, and he became our Passover lamb to lead us out in a new exodus, not out of slavery in Egypt, but out of slavery to sin. He redeemed us. He paid the necessary debt, the necessary cost of forgiveness. He paid the debt that we owed to God, which was what? Our undivided love. Jesus fulfilled the human vocation that we were created with because he was the first person ever to live with a completely whole heart of worship towards God. And in that, as our representative, he paid the debt that each one of us owed God. And if we become associated to him, his riches become our riches. Our debt becomes his debt. And it's not only, he didn't only go to the cross so that we'd be, we, we would be forgiven. He went to the cross so we'd be forgiven so that we could live out our created purpose. To once again, because the people were set free from Egypt, not just to wander around in the desert. Oh, we're, we're free now in the desert. They were set free from the slavery so that they'd be able to worship God once again. Right? And so this is the final slide that Jesus' death sets you free from slavery to sin. The debt is paid. Jesus picked up the tab. <laughs> You're no longer under the pressure. Because here's the thing all those people, they were worried about different areas of performance, whether religious or political or moral. They were all under the weight of having to perform for something. And Jesus comes and says, I've, I've picked it up. Now, if you want to thank me, if you want to live for me, you're, you're not doing it out of a sense of, I have to please God by doing this. You're doing it out of a sense of freedom that I don't have to pay. It's already paid. Anything I give now is just a gratuity. <laughs> we're free to simply enjoy him to love him from a grateful heart. And so as the worship team uh, makes its way back up to the stage, we'll end with a, with a song together. We've seen, you know, who's responsible? Well, in a sense, we're all responsible. And yet Jesus took responsibility for us. Why does it matter? Because he represents us as our king. And through his blood, judgment passes over us. And what does it have to do with us? Well, the Bible says you can make what he did on the cross applicable to your life by faith. Now, I've spoken, you know, for 40 minutes or so on this. Do you need to understand all this for it to work? No. You don't need to understand how the cross works, any, you know, for it to be effective any more than you need to understand nutrition for a meal to give you nutrition. What do you have to do? You just got to, you got to eat it. <laughs> and so think about faith almost as a, a penicillin tablet. You don't have to understand how it works. You just have to have enough trust that if you take it, it's going to heal you. And so the way we do that by faith is we come to Jesus and we talk to him and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry 
for all the debt that I've racked up, how my love has been poured out on all these other things, and I have turned you in, I've betrayed you, just like all the people in this story. I've traded you in for all sorts of other things that are less than your, your worth. Jesus, thank you that you paid that debt for me. You went to the cross and you died for my sins in accordance with all the promises and the story of scripture. And because of that, Jesus, I'm asking you to make me a new person. Transform me. I commit myself to you. And if you can come to Jesus and and commit your heart to him that way, Jesus says, your tab, I got it covered. So why don't we stand together and pray. And if if you pray that today, if you go home and you pray that on your own uh, and you commit yourself to Jesus, this is a road to walk out together. Please come talk to me, talk to someone else here. If you're online, stay around to the end of the the stream and there's some information for you because we want to walk this out together. So let's pray and then we'll go back into a, a time of worship together. Jesus, we thank you that what we celebrate today on Palm Sunday, Lord, that you are our king. Lord, and that you became king on the cross for us. Lord, as we enter into this holy week, this center of the story, Lord, we give you praise that you've led us out of a new and and greater exodus. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're free to worship you with whole and undivided hearts. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you. Would you work on our hearts this week and prepare us for the celebration of your your resurrection in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.